This podcast is for information only and should not be considered legal advice. There is no representation that the legal services to be performed by LOCA are better than the services of other attorneys. There is no guarantee of the outcome. Success is rendered on a case-by-case basis. Welcome back, everybody. This is Tim Markley from K. Altman Law. You are listening to the Legally Blind Justice Podcast. Schools are heading into the holiday break, and students, unfortunately, continue to get in trouble. You may have gotten into trouble yourself, which is why you are listening to us. You think you can handle it, but you may be surprised to know that you need a lawyer. At K. Altman Law, we talk to hundreds of people who discovered that what they thought was not a big deal is a life-altering event. Students who thought they could work it out with the school are being expelled, suspended, or placed on probation. This podcast will discuss those issues, tell you where to find help, and explain how the system works. So far, we have focused on college and university students. Few people think that a student in elementary school or high school or middle school would need legal help, but you would be wrong. There are multiple areas that often require legal assistance. Unfortunately, this one segment of the legal world is where it's hard to find experienced help. There are firms that specialize in representing school districts and governmental organizations. However, there are a few firms that specialize in helping individual students against the school or the district. K. Altman Law is one of those firms that help students across the country. What makes us different is that we combine skilled attorneys with educational professionals. Our staff has retired school administrators and former school superintendents who are specialized to help our clients navigate the often arcane world of educational law and policy. This unique team can help clients navigate a variety of educational issues. To dig deeper into this, we've asked Rich Gill, the Managing Director of K. Altman Law, to join us. Rich is a retired educator who worked at both the middle school and high school levels as a teacher and as a school administrator. Rich, welcome back to the Legally Blind Justice podcast. Thank you, Dr. Markley. I'm glad to be here. Happy 2023. The world of K-12 is different than higher ed, which is what we've been talking about in previous podcasts. So can you tell me a little bit about what makes K-12 different from higher education? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, most K-12 students are not 18, so they, they, don't, they don't have all the legal rights of a full citizen. So school districts and schools can, can make up rules that actually abridge certain civil rights that we take for granted, like freedom of speech and freedom of expression in the K to 12 world can't just leave school if they want to. Um, They have to be where they're assigned to be. Um, They can't cut classes. So those types of rules are pretty specific to the K to 12 world. And they're really designed for the safety of the students and the safety of the school body. But sometimes they can, they can run up against, consequences that, you know, are meted out by the school district based on their own rules that aren't really federal or state laws. So we're going to jump into those first. There are three areas that I want to cover today, school discipline, Title IX, and special ed. But let's jump into that school discipline world first. In a school, they've got certain tools, and one of those is suspension, long-term and short-term suspensions. What's the difference there? So short-term suspensions typically means less than 10 days, and school administrators have lots and lots of leeway 
to mete out consequences of suspensions that are less than 10 days. Long-term suspensions typically, and again, this varies from state, state to state because state laws govern education, but typically anything over 10 days, there are different procedural requirements that the school has to sort of check the boxes of before they can suspend a student for more than 10 days. And then, of course, the, there's that, the hugest penalty, which is expulsion. Most states have laws governing when expulsion can and cannot be used in, in schools, K-12. Frankly, those, those rules are pretty strict. They're, uh, they're typically, you know, bringing weapons to school or, um, you know, violence, things, things of that nature. And oftentimes they have to be repeated. So it, it can be a pretty daunting process for a parent to hear their child's going to be expelled, especially when they didn't think their child had warranted or done anything to, to, to earn a, an expulsion. So how does an attorney help them with that process? You know, once, once you get to the expulsion stage, most states have laws and rules around what constitutes, what constitutes behavior that can result in expulsion. And quite frankly, various states handle them different ways. I, I can tell you from my experience in Massachusetts, um, which is where I did most of my K-12 administrative work, uh, it's almost impossible to expel a student from the school because students are entitled to a free and appropriate education. But other states tend to be a little bit more trigger happy about expulsions, and they have expansive alternative school systems to handle kids that have been expelled. So getting back to your question, how can an attorney help? An attorney can read the laws, interpret the laws, explain them to the families, and make a determination about whether or not an expulsion is warranted by the behavior. So walk me through a, a typical expulsion process. How do we get to an expulsion? Does the principal make a recommendation? Is it a board, school board decision? Yeah, I can, what, I, what I think I'll do is I'll respond in general terms because normally expulsion is handled by the school board or the school committee after a recommendation by the, the, the school principal and the school su superintendent. But I believe that uh, superintendents in some states have the authority to do expulsions without board approval. So again, I think, that, you know, the governance of the laws around expulsion are what need to be explored in each individual case. All right, so if I'm hearing you, I get in trouble at the school, the principal says, I'm going to suspend you, and then he recommends expulsion to the district office, typically superintendent, assistant superintendent, and then it goes from the assistant superintendent up to a school board to make that final decision. So there's an appeal at every step of the way. An attorney can help you, A, interpret the rules, understand the timelines that are associated with, the, with the, an expulsion, and a good attorney will help you with the arguments around those expulsions. Do we have due process rights? At the well, again, dictated state by state, and we have a lot of state laws. Um, mo from, from my understanding, most students are entitled to have an attorney present in an expulsion hearing. Some states allow the attorney to actually talk and cross-examine witnesses. Others don't. But again, you know, w when you get to an expulsion phase and you get to a, a board hearing, you're starting, to, you're starting to look at a process that looks a lot more like a courtroom than a school. And anytime you're in that kind of a venue, having representation is probably a good idea. 
because the consequences for the child are extreme. Being removed from a district school pretty much guarantees that the child's not going to get educated in their hometown, right? So they're going to have to find another school or they're going to be an alternative school for children with behavior problems. There are even states where if you're expelled from a um, state-funded school, you can't attend public schools within that state. So the family might have to absorb the cost of a private school. So it's, it's, a, it's a big deal with a, lot of, with a lot of potential downside for the child. And um, I, yeah, I do, rec- I do recommend that if you have a child facing an expulsion that you have some help. Right, so let's move past expulsion now and just talk about some other typical discipline things. Because as you said, schools have a little more flexibility in how they handle things. For example, in the real world, if somebody wants to search your stuff, they need a, a search warrant and probable cause. Does that the standard hold true in a school setting? No, absolutely not. In fact, most schools, as we all know, children are assigned lockers. Those lockers are considered school property, and they can be searched at any time an administrator decides that that's true. That's also true typically in high schools that allow students to drive to school. Once the car is on school property, they are typically subject to search for any reason whatsoever. So if an administrator decides, hey, you know what, I'm going to bring in um, drug sniffing dogs and I'm going to look at every car in the parking lot, the students are subject to discipline based on what those dogs find. And another area that, that tends to be different between, K, between K-12 and the outside world is free speech. Can I just go up and curse out one of my teachers? <laughs> No, no. I mean, you can, but um, you would be subject to discipline, clearly, right? And repeated behaviors of that kind can lead to long-term suspension. So, you know, we talked about the difference between short-term suspensions and long-term suspensions. Excessive short-term suspensions or multiple short-term suspensions can automatically result in long-term suspensions. And those things, again, are sort of dictated by the, the school and the school district rules around those things. The school's got an attorney. They've got all of these complicated rules. So if I'm hearing you, you're saying you need somebody on your side to help you sort out all of these rules. Yeah, I mean, again, the, the, the real issue is what happens is parents have kids. Kids, you know, the reason they're kids is they their prefrontal cortex isn't developed. They make bad decisions sometimes. It doesn't mean they're bad people necessarily. And parents are parents. They're not attorneys. They're not educators. They don't typically read the student handbooks. They should. What typically happens is the student handbook is sent home electronically and before the kid can register for classes, you have to check a box that says you read it and you don't read it. So you really don't know what rules are bounded, are bounding your child in school. And again, they they vary from school district to school district and state to state. So having a professional like you or me um, or an attorney, if it gets to the point where we have to interpret laws, is, is a good idea when your child is in significant trouble. One of the other areas that we see from, in a lot of states is uh, enrollment. I got assigned to school A, but I really want to go to school B. Tell me how that works and, and what are the implications there? Well, typically school districts have a lot of latitude about how they assign the borders of their schools and set up their transportation systems. And and they try, you know, what they're trying to do is they're trying to balance 
the resources available at each school with the number of students they have enrolled, right? You know, most school district boundaries are set by the school board, school committee, but but we know that there are communities that have lots of folks moving in and out and demographics change. So when that happens, the school board will sometimes reorganize, you know, which schools service which local areas. And most of the time that's driven by, quite frankly, bus routes and the costs associated with buses and transportation because children are also entitled to transportation when they're beyond a certain distance from the school. So um, I think that the short answer to the question, my child's assigned to one school, but we would rather have them in another. You don't really have a lot of rights around that. That said, if it's in the school's best interest to have the child in a different school, again, based on the number of students in the school and what the resources look like. And if you're, if the family's willing to provide transportation, the school may allow you to make that transfer upon request. But that's a school decision, typically. There are two areas, though, where the federal government puts its hand in pretty heavily, and that's Title IX and special education. So let's start with Title IX. We hear about Title IX and we think about athletics and girls sports and boys sports and making sure they're equal. But Title IX is a whole lot different than that, isn't it? There's a whole lot more to it. Yeah, there is a, there, there's a lot more to it. I mean, Title IX basically talks about the um, about sexual harassment and inappropriate behavior in schools that receive federal funding. I mean, some of the matters can be as small as my daughter complained that this boy continuously bumps up against her in gym and makes her uncomfortable. They can file a Title IX claim. And then the school is bound by legal requirements about how to investigate that Title IX claim. So it's my understanding, every school, every school district is supposed to have a Title IX coordinator whose job is to oversee Title IX. But Title IX at the K-12 world is very different than the students we serve in the college world. In the college world, there's often a hearing. It's got a very legalistic process to it. What's it look like at the K-12 world? Well, actually, it's, it's, not, um, it's not hugely different. Uh, the, the most significant difference in a K-12 Title IX is that there's no requirement for a hearing. Title IX at the college level and above, there's a requirement for a live hearing. Both parties are allowed to be represented by attorneys. There's rules around cross-examining witnesses and things like that. K-12, they can opt for a live hearing. But typically they don't. They try to make determinations based primarily on the investigation. Uh, but up to the hearing itself, many of the K-12 rules for Title IX are the same. They're required. There is, like you said, there's a requirement to have a Title IX officer. Now, in a college, a Title IX officer is probably a permanent position, and that's all they do. At the K-12 level, it's somebody who's received some training on Title IX, and that's sort of one of the things that they have to do in addition to being an assistant superintendent or a principal or a assistant principal. Or so. it's, a, it's sort of just a, it's another, another hat that they wear. So where Title IX procedures are pretty well locked down in colleges because there are trained and qualified Title IX officers involved, oftentimes at the K-12 level, the, um, the Title IX officer isn't quite as well trained and they do their best, but I mean, if you're if you have a child in the K to 12 world and they're accused of a Title IX violation, or you think that somebody is harassing your child, 
and you would like to make a Title IX claim, it would be a good idea to get help from a firm like ours who does Title IX work extensively and has educators on staff who are well-trained in those areas. Yeah, because talking to you and talking to our other folks who do a lot of this, we find that they're very inconsistent in applying the, the standards and the rules across the board. And in some cases, what we think should be a Title IX case, they're not adjudicating as a Title IX case. And we do that because we think it's important for them to get the protection that Title IX offers, offers in terms of process. So it's, it's critical that you got somebody there to, to work with you. Your thought created another thought in my mind, too. Another thing that I think that we see sometimes is that, especially in the K-12 world, whereas you implied school districts can be hesitant to apply the Title IX rules, others over-apply them, right? So they look at a situation and they say, this is Title IX, we have to do a big investigation. And really, it's, it's a student discipline issue that can be handled at a much lower level. So there's... There tends to be those sort of big swings in the K-12 world, and I really do think that that's because they don't have full-time Title IX officers. They have these sort of, you know, all right, I'm going to put my Title Title IX hat on now, and we're going to hire an outside investigator and cross our fingers that it works out. Yes, unfortunately, we see that a lot. Could you think about the standards of Title IX? Obviously, sexual assault is clearly a Title IX issue and needs to be dealt with. But some of the other issues aren't quite as, as clear-cut as that. Sexual harassment is supposed to be severe, pervasive, and ongoing. Oftentimes, we see one-time incidences that have turned into full-blown Title IX issues that could have been better handled as a student discipline matter. So you're right. It, it, we, we've got them at both ends of the pendulum. And then as a parent, you need somebody to help you sort through that. Other area where the federal government has their hand in K-12 education extensively is special education. You've got a child who is in special education, you understand what that is. But for somebody who doesn't, who hasn't had a child identified as special needs, what is special education? So special education is a, a, a part of our public education system that's designed to support students with learning disabilities, right? So, and, and they can be simple or they can be very complex. And I'll just use myself as an example. When I was growing up, I was identified with a learning disability in reading comprehension, which meant I would read a paragraph and have no idea what it said. And then when I answered questions about that paragraph, I would answer whatever felt good to me. So my grades suffered, but my grades didn't suffer because I wasn't bright enough to complete the work. They suffered because I couldn't, I didn't have the skills to read and synthesize the information that was being presented to me. So I would answer questions that were completely different than the questions that were asked. Unfortunately, when I grew up, there was no special education system. It's it's fairly fairly newer than my, my time as a K-12 student, but my parents were educators and they identified it and they, they hired me a tutor and I got over it. So let's, let's, let's take your example, because it's a really good one and it's a very common one. So I've got an issue with, with comprehension and a teacher has recognized this, so they want to, to help me. What's that process of getting help look like in today's, special educa- in today's education world? So before a student can, can be called a special education student, and I'm using quote fingers in the air here, um, they need to go through an assessment of tests. 
So, so typically what happens is a student that may be doing particularly well in one area, maybe math and science, is struggling mightily in English um, because we're talking about reading comprehension. So when it comes to doing a math problem or doing a science lab, they're great. But when they're asked to read a novel and interpolate it and put into their own words their thoughts around it, they're just incapable of doing that. If that's identified by the teacher as a problem, like this child is working hard and I'm just not getting reasonable answers from them, they can be recommended for special education testing. Special education testing is typically done by the school psychologist who are trained in, in doing special education testing. And those tests will identify any learning disabilities that the child may have. Once that's completed, an IEP team will be put together and the IEP team is made up of school-based personnel, the school psychologist, the family, the child, if the child's over 13, is typically involved as well. And they determine as a team what, what types of supports the child might need. So if we're talking about a reading disability, for example, the school district may decide, hey, this, this guy, Rich Gill, he needs to meet with a reading specialist for an hour a week. And during that hour a week, the reading specialist will work with him to provide support so that he can interpret large amounts of information on his own. And that's the goal of an IEP, to provide supports to students with learning disabilities so that they're able to get educated. Now, that sounds like a fairly straightforward process, but there are some roadblocks in this that I think parents need to be aware of. First of all, when you request, when you get identified and there's a need to be tested, there are time limits that have to be met for that. Additionally, as a parent, you may think your child needs testing and the school doesn't. And those create roadblocks that you might need assistance with. And then you're going to get to that IEP process, which involves a team decision. Talk to me a little bit about that IEP process and that, what that team is. All right, let me, let me first just close the loop on the testing. So parents can request IEP testing for their kids and, and schools really, if you request in writing that you believe that your child has learning disabilities and you want them tested, typically schools will test. I have not run up against a lot of re resistance to do that. It's part of the, it's part of the process of the way they support kids. Once that testing is done, if the student is identified as having a disability, the goals of that are to determine what types of extra supports does the student need to be successful? Which of those should the school be providing? What sort of extra time might the student have to invest in their own education? And what are the goals of the IEP? When students get to college, students obviously if you have a disability, you have a disability, it's going to be with you for life. I still have a reading disability, right? I just have tools that help me um, handle that. I know how to read my own way to get good comprehension from it. So college students typically aren't on IEPs. They can be, but they typically aren't because they've already been taught how to deal with their own disability. So one of the main thrusts of, a, of the special education and the IEP program is to identify the disability early, 
and provide the student with tools so that they can self-regulate their disability and become productive students without additional support. So oftentimes what the team wants to do is they want to provide supports and training and extra extra time or a quiet testing environment, things of that nature. And then they want to slowly take those supports away as the child becomes more and more self-sufficient. So that's really the sort of the overarching goal of, a, of an IEP, individualized education plan, is to get the, the student to the point where they're self-sufficient and can go on to college or life without, you know, additional supports. So the IEP process is one pressure point we see that sometimes having an advocate is good, is useful there. The second one we see often is after the IEP is written and it's supposed to be implemented, but it's not. So that's where we seem to come in a lot is helping parents whose IEP says one thing, but the implementation of that IEP is different. So talk to, talk to, talk to me about what we're doing there to help parents. Sure. Well, let, let me just step back to the IEP process. So, um, you know, the IEP team, which I mentioned, is typically a regular educator from the school, a special ed educator from the school, the school psychologist, school administrator. So you're hearing four or five names associated with the school. And then the home. So a parent, typically, parent, parent or guardian, and the child if the child's 13. So again, educators' goals are to support kids in general. But sometimes in the IEP process, the school's willingness to provide supports differs with the parent's belief about what the child needs, right? Now, the team has to agree, but if there's no agreement, the team decides. So let's just, let's look at an example. A parent decides that a kid needs two times as much time to take a test as anybody else. The school says, no, we think, you know, one and a half is plenty and the child will do well there, there's a disagreement, the parent loses. And the team, because the team is deciding as a team, uh, not a democracy, but as a team, that you know, we think 1.5 will be just fine. One of the services we provide with our special education group is uh, special education advocates who attend those meetings with the parents and have the same level of knowledge as school officials and can argue for additional supports based on the language of education, which oftentimes parents don't have, right? I mean, they're parents looking out for the best interests of their kids. So that's one area that we do spend a lot of time on, attending IEP meetings and helping the parents get the supports that they think the, kid, the kids need. And you're right, the second, the second thing that comes off sometimes, comes up sometimes is the IEP is written appropriately but the implementation of the IEP is not appropriate. So, for instance, uh, I'm just throwing out this example because it's a case that I'm currently working on with the special education group. We have a child who needs um, a reduction in workload because she has an illness and she can't engage in her work for as many hours as, as her peers. The school has written this into her, she's actually on a 504, but They've written this into her education plan that she should have a reduced workload, but the school's done nothing in a unified way 
with her teachers to ensure that the workload is actually reduced, right? They're leaving that to the discretion of six different teachers. And that's problematic because they're all using different standards and expectations, and it's difficult for the child to, you know, to juggle those different expectations. So we're working um, very hard right now to try to get that implementation in line with our expectations about what's written in the document. So how does having an advocate make that process better for the parent? It's like any career, right? Um, we, we all know that every career has its own language, expectations, the way we talk about things, our understanding of the circumstances, how much experience we have with other students that are in the same sort of position. Parents don't have any of that. Parents are parents of kids. They're concerned about their kids. They don't know that Joe Small in another school district with a very similar disability was provided this, these levels of supports while their child is only getting less, a lower level. Of, they don't know that. How could they know that? And if they walk into those situations with a school-based team, really all they can do is take as correct the information that the team's passing on. And sometimes the team will say, well, we don't, we don't do that. That's not something we do. When in fact, it's something they should be doing and would be appropriate for them to do. But how is a parent to know that? And an advocate, you know, our advocates at Kaleman Law, um, an advocate is a special educator who has been in many school districts, seen many students with disabilities, understands what support should look like in various circumstances. They just bring a level of knowledge to the plate um, and they can, you know, they can pass that information on the parents. The other thing that's often useful about having an advocate for a special education student is their advocates, advocates aren't parents, right? So while we, we love the kids that we're trying to support in school, they're not our children. So sometimes we can provide perspective to parents and say, no, what the school's recommending here is appropriate. And we understand you'd like more, but it's really not something you should expect them to be able to give you, right? You know, we have parents that say, well, we don't, you know, our child isn't being supported properly in the special education group. So we want the school to pay for a placement to another school. No, that's not necessarily reasonable. And it's very expensive to a school district. Really, the answer is that we want to work with the school to get the appropriate supports in place. You mentioned that we have our own language. And you used one of those terms that somebody might not know. And that's called a 504. A 504 and an IEP are a lot alike. But how are they different? Well, so a 504 is based on, the law, on a federal law that requires equal access for, for people with Physical, hand, physical handicaps or handicaps, disabilities. IEPs are designed for students with learning disabilities. And again, that's, that's federal law as well, but it's different. So let me give you an example of the difference. Johnny breaks his leg playing football and he's in a wheelchair for four weeks while his leg heals. He may be put on a 504 plan because of his broken leg that allows him to use the school's elevators, gives him additional transition time between classes, allows him to leave class early or show up a little bit late, right? That, that's sort of what the 504 plan is designed to do. It's designed to help students that have identified health issues, not learning disabilities, but health issues 
cope. Uh, I'll give you another example. A student who's quite bright, but may have like an autoimmune system disorder of some sort that's lifelong and doesn't sleep well, that student might be put on a 504 that allows them to come to school late every day because they're not sleeping, right? So that's a 504. Typically, students on 504s do not have learning disabilities, but there is a fine line between a 504 and, a, and, I, and an IEP because if the disability is impacting the student's ability to learn, a student can transition from a 504 to an IEP. They're, they're typically, you know, they're governed by different laws, but they're typically handled by the same special education group. Uh, it's just sort of a matter of which paperwork is pursued. All right, so let's wrap up this discussion of special ed with one last thing. A term you often hear with special ed is called FAPE, or free and appropriate education, or free appropriate public education. What does that mean? Does it mean that I have to pay for certain services or uh, am I limited by what I can receive for services for my child? Well, so, yeah, again, the, the services, services are determined based on the needs of the child and free and appropriate means exactly that. If it's appropriate, it's going to be provided for free. That's what the law means. So if, if I have a very severe disability, that means I have to miss classes and I need a reduced curriculum and I need special tutoring services after school and I need a chauffeur to pick me up at home and deliver me to school and now I'm obviously exaggerating, then the school is required to provide that for free. That's what it means, free and appropriate. If it's appropriate, it's free. Obviously, the... <clears throat> the, the argument point is the appropriate piece, right? If my, if my mom, you know, I have a reading disability and my mom says to the school, well, you know, he, he really needs his own bus to get to school so he can read because he needs more time to read. So you have to drive him to and from school every day. No, not appropriate. Um, Last question. We get a lot of calls from charter school folks. And they're confused because they, they don't understand what a charter school is. So real quickly, charter schools, do they fall into private school world, public school world, or, or somewhere in the middle? Uh, boy, you're really peppering me today, huh? Okay, charter schools. Charter school systems were, were put in place relatively recently. And the real goal, sort of from the high political standpoint of why charter schools even exist is because um, there was a belief that charter schools would provide competition for public schools. Charter schools are bounded by different rules than public schools are, but they're public schools. Charter schools are incorporated with a specific charter approved of their, by their state. So, for example, a charter school can, <clears throat> can apply to the state and say, we're going to be a charter school. We're not going to have a special education group whatsoever. Um, we're only going to cater to students with an IQ of 100 or better. And folks, and we'd like to set up school. And if the, if the state approves them, approves the charter, that's what they're bound by. So if a, if a special ed student wants to go to that school and the charter says, 
they don't have a special ed program and it was approved that way, then the child's not eligible to attend that charter school. But, but typically charter schools are set up in school districts where some of the public schools don't have great reputations and they're really, they're, they're present to sort of bring a higher level of education to the area, right? So they, they often do have special education programs and they do often comply with most of the same rules as public schools, not all. I mean, one of the things I used to see a lot in Massachusetts is we'd have students that started in charter schools and their grades were low or they'd get in conduct problems and the charter schools would cut them and then they would show up on our doorstep and we'd have to educate them. Um, so there's a little bit of unfairness there in the competition because they can sort of weed through the students that they want to have. So for parents who are dealing with charter schools, just to make sure I'm encapsulating this, charter schools are public schools. And if you've got an issue with a charter school, make sure you look at their actual charter rules as to how they were created and what, what those rules are. They also tend to have a different governing body. They tend to have their own board of directors as opposed to the, to the school board. So you need to be aware of that. Um, but they still have to follow all of the other public rules, except for what's within their incorporating charter. Again, Rich, thanks for being with us today. We look forward to bringing you back to discuss other student defense issues in greater detail. Finally, if you get into trouble, you should seek professional advice. The school or university has complex rules, policies, and procedures that govern their processes. This is true for the K-12 world as well. They have a legal staff to advise them, and you should as well. You need experienced help to get the results that you need. Trust a firm such as K. Altman Law to guide you through the legal minefield and get the results you want. Thank you for listening to the Legally Blind Justice podcast. If you have a legal question, call us at 1-888-984-1341 or check us out on the web at kaltmanlaw.com. If you have suggestions on how we can improve, feel free to email me at timothymarkley at kaltmanlaw.com.